In our last episode in this two-part series, we spoke with infectious diseases researcher Mallory Ellingson to learn why some people might be vaccine-hesitant and how to have more productive conversations around vaccine hesitancy. Today, we want to talk specifically about a vaccine that is sparking conversations all over the globe. You guessed it, it's the COVID-19 vaccine, or should I say, vaccines. It is a, a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity. When you realize that uh, your vaccine has a 90% effectiveness, that's overwhelming. Uh, you understand that uh, the hopes of billions of people and millions and uh, businesses and hundreds of governments that were felt on our shoulders, now we can uh, credibly try them. I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel. Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna's COVID-19 vaccines caused a lot of stir as two of the first vaccines to show safety and efficacy in phase 3 trials, and numerous others have since entered the stage. Despite the fact that we finally have the greatest weapon against our invisible enemy, our global army must now deal with difficult questions on how best to arm its forces. To help us understand some of these questions, we spoke with Dr. Noni McDonald. Dr. McDonald is a pediatrician, infectious diseases specialist, vaccinologist, and the first woman in Canada to become dean of a medical school. She's also a passionate global health advocate, and The Lancet has praised her in an article as an inspirational leader in Canadian and global health. She has been invested into the Order of Nova Scotia and the Order of Canada for her outstanding contributions to the nation. I'm uh, Noni McDonald. I'm a professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax, and I'm at the IWK Health Centre as well. The COVID-19 vaccine is a messenger RNA, or mRNA vaccine. For our listeners who might not be familiar, mRNA is a molecule made from DNA. You know, that microscopic double helix that looks like a Twizzlers failed quality control, and codes all of the information that makes you, you, a banana, a banana, and Kanye a genius. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is an RNA molecule. But RNA viruses have been around long before SARS-CoV-2. For example, measles, polio, and other coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-1. So why are we only now starting to use mRNA vaccines? And what is so special about them? We have several kinds of traditional viral vaccines. I'm not going to talk about the other ones. The viral vaccines, they're inactivated vaccines, or they are attenuated vaccines, which are the virus that has been killed, and then we give it to you dead. That's inactivated. Or we have the virus, and we have uh, adjusted it so it doesn't make you sick, uh, but it does multiply within you. So that would be like our measles virus or our mumps virus or chickenpox. Then we have some subunit vaccines like uh, HPV vaccine and hepatitis B vaccine, but we've not had ones that came with mRNA, which means that in this case, the package comes with the mRNA inside it. It then attaches to your cells, injects inside, and it makes the protein. So it's like a step back from it. One of the real advantages for this is, you know, everybody's a bit worried about mutations and some of the mutations we've worried about, although they aren't all as bad as was initially suspected. But you can readjust this piece of mRNA to fit whatever you want it to fit. 
So readjusting this to make it so that you're now adapted to one of these other new mutants and you're going to be able to have a new vaccine to that new mutant is really relatively simple here compared to what it would be with our previous kinds of vaccines. So that's one of the things that's made it especially interesting. Because mRNA is so closely related to DNA, one fear that goes through people's minds is that genetic information in the vaccine may integrate into our DNA, making us compulsive buyers of Microsoft products, for example. A more common reason people are suspicious of the new mRNA vaccines is how fast they've been developed. We're used to clinical trials for vaccines and drugs taking many years from conception to approval by the Food and Drug Association, or FDA. If you want to learn more on that topic, you can check out our hashtag Big Pharma episode. In our last interview with Mallory Ellingson, she explained why it shouldn't surprise us too much that mRNA vaccines have arrived at our doorstep like an Amazon Prime Express package. She voiced that while it normally takes nearly 15 years to develop a vaccine, characterizing the recent vaccine development as a 9-month process is inaccurate since the technology that enabled mRNA vaccines has actually been around for years. Not to mention the revolutionary advances that allowed scientists to sequence the entire viral genome by January 2020. In addition, she explained that the phase 1, 2, and 3 clinical trials were not cut short, but rather, it was a motivation in the scientific and general community that enabled us to fund and enroll so many participants for the trials to run them efficiently. However, even those who have confidence in the accelerated phase 3 clinical trial results for the leading vaccines like Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna may maintain skepticism toward other vaccines. Sinopharm is one vaccine developer that was critiqued on Nature News for having not published their phase 3 clinical trial data in a peer-reviewed journal. Despite this, it was emergently deployed for use in China and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were the first to order the vaccine. There have been cries of concerns around the globe that some countries, depending on their politics and economic wealth, may turn to vaccines that have not yet been adequately tested. COVAX, which is short for COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access, is a global vaccine-sharing initiative led by UNICEF, the World Health Organization, Gavi Vaccine Alliance, and others to tackle the problem of vaccine inequity. The problem is perhaps aggravated by the world's richest countries pre-ordering excess numbers of the vaccine. In a December 2020 Nature News article, Canada led the pack with an overwhelming 9 doses ordered per capita, and Canada too stirred some unease in the population when we approved orders for Oxford-AstraZeneca and more recently Johnson & Johnson vaccines. For um, the World Health Organization, to give approval for a vaccine to be used in many of the countries, low-income countries that do not have their own national regulatory authority. They require approval of that vaccine, usually by the European Medicines Agency. And if they don't have approval by the European Medicines Agency, it won't get approval. So when people say a drug like Sinopharm isn't getting the full meal deal, it's not actually correct. And there will be no vaccines that are approved for use through Gavi or through the COVAX facility and made that will not have that kind of approval done for them. Now, let me back up another step. 
about differing vaccine trials and what was being measured. And you were seeing that even with vaccines that were being developed in Europe and in the United States and other places, what the endpoints were for the Moderna vaccine and the endpoints for the Pfizer vaccine were not the same endpoints or for the AstraZeneca vaccine. And the people in the trials were not all the same. These trials all had bits of differences in them. So for the AstraZeneca vaccine, it did not initially receive approval here in Canada for people over the age of 65, because there wasn't much data on over the 65s. It did um, receive approval in the United Kingdom, and they've now used it. And we now have actually way more data on AstraZeneca in the over 65 age group than we would have ever had from clinical trials. And it looks to be very safe and very effective. So how the recommendations will get modified happens as more data comes in. What's different here and what isn't what we're used to is everything is a bit compressed. To, you know, like we don't have the same kind of timelines that we've had before. It doesn't mean it's less safe. It just means we're not waiting. So we knew the AstraZeneca from the clinical trials worked really well for adults under 65. Go for it. Okay. Over 65, they then got more data, but it already had approval. And here in Canada, the recommendations, I think, will follow along with what the data that's coming out. So for a vaccine like the Sinopharm, their vaccine, all of that data will be looked at by the EMA, and then the decisions will be made whether or not to approve it or not. And then away it goes. Since our interview with Dr. McDonald, Oxford AstraZeneca's vaccine has come under media fire for possibly being linked to blood clots. Specific batches have been recalled, and Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization has recommended an immediate pause in the use of the vaccine in people under the age of 55. This is an evolving story. When someone runs a clinical trial, they start by defining endpoints, which are what effects they think or hypothesize that their product will achieve. These are defined beforehand so that the trial can confirm or reject the hypothesis. A primary endpoint in the Oxford-AstraZeneca trials was whether the vaccine prevented infection, measured by routine COVID testing of their participants. It may surprise you that only a minority of vaccines actually achieve this endpoint. The measles and hepatitis B vaccines are in this category. In contrast, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine did not measure the prevention of infection itself as a primary endpoint, but rather the prevention of severe disease. Fortunately though, real-world data from Israel that came out this month suggests it is over 90% effective at preventing asymptomatic transmission as well. Most importantly, every available COVID vaccine in Canada is 100% effective at preventing hospitalization. Regarding efficacy, Dr. McDonald suggested that comparing the clinical trial data between vaccines is difficult due to differing trial participants and endpoints. For example, the Moderna trial was conducted in the United States over the summer of 2020 when case rates of COVID-19 were low. The Johnson & Johnson trial was conducted much later, around the time of the second wave, and when new resistant variant strains were emerging. These different endpoints have large implications on epidemiology. An article in the Annals of Internal Medicine suggested that a vaccine that essentially converts symptomatic infections 
to asymptomatic ones without also decreasing their transmissibility could paradoxically result in the spread of more COVID-19 cases throughout the population when these asymptomatic carriers aren't isolating or getting tested. When a majority of the population is vaccinated, this may not be a big deal, as the virus plays pinball bouncing between asymptomatic hosts. However, in a population with low rates of vaccination, these extra transmissions could cause serious damage. On this point, clearly there are inequities that the global community with COVAX needs to continue to address, which is beyond the scope of this episode. But even at home, there are challenges. One way to increase vaccinations is to reduce vaccine hesitancy, which was the focus of our previous episode. However, the strategy for vaccine rollout is also important to think about. Most of the approved COVID-19 vaccines have a two-dose schedule, and this raises interesting questions whether to prioritize getting a smaller number of people two doses or a larger number of people one dose. Evolving guidelines by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or CDC, to spread doses apart by three weeks, then five weeks, and now three months, favor the latter. Public opinion is divided on this, with one side asking, are we sacrificing efficacy for speed? The key to asking this question is distinguishing efficacy from effectiveness. As defined by Gavi, efficacy is how good a vaccine is at preventing infection and transmission in a controlled clinical trial setting, while effectiveness is how well it works in practice, with all the complex interplay of variables in the real world. So let me answer that in a twofold way. Number one, when people were first talking about delaying the second dose, we did not have a lot of data on how and I'm using a very special word here, how effective that was in the real world. We had some efficacy trial data. That's the pre-approval clinical data. It's only efficacy, very selected populations followed for specific lengths of time. And we didn't have effectiveness data. We now have effectiveness data for both Pfizer and the AstraZeneca out of the UK that shows one dose is very effective for 12 weeks. So the whole kerfluffle about should we wait, delay, blah, 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 blah. The reason the kerfluffle was there at the beginning is because we didn't have the data. And a lot of people were a bit, a lot of the scientists looking at the data said, well, I don't know if there's enough to say this is a good thing to do. There's now enough data to say it is a very good thing to do. The second part of that, and the reason is such a very good thing to do is the more people we can get protected with one dose, the less we're going to have hospitalizations and utilization of the healthcare system, okay? And the less we're going to have serious disease. That is a really good thing. We know serious disease is not just in the over 80s. It's not as common in the younger people, but it's still there, okay? So this will allow many, 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 well, twice as many people to be immunized early than what we would have been able to do before. So in a way, the effectiveness data opened a whole new door. And the modeling that's been used based on that effectiveness data says we will literally save money and save lives and save resources.
by doing this. Now, all of you who are sitting there trembling, going, ah, but I want my second dose. I want my second dose. Yep, you do want your second dose and you will get it. Okay. But it's just going to be not quite as quick as it was before. But I fully expect you'll get your second dose because I think, well, we'll see what the data shows in the longer term. But the other thing is you may be getting a second dose that's different than what your first dose was because there are studies going on in mixing and matching using one vaccine followed by a second vaccine. And we'll have that trial data out by the time your second dose would come. It may be more beneficial to have two different vaccines than it is to have one. So those who got the two of the same were going, ah, why wasn't I in the group? Companies are really working hard to develop um, a new vaccine that will address the, the mutants, the, the big mutants that we know about. So, for example, uh, the one that, uh, that came out of South Africa. OK, and if those come up, your second dose might not be the same as your first dose, it might be the same company, but it might be one against the mutant. And again, you're in better shape than those who got the two doses of the plain stuff to begin with, and they will need a booster of the other. So there's a whole lot of things that are in play right now. But the one thing is, I don't think you should be really worried. It's not, we, ha we have the effectiveness data, which is even more important and more generalizable than efficacy data ever is. Other experts agree with very similar reasoning to Dr. McDonald. Dr. Chris Mackey, Medical Officer of Health and CEO of the Middlesex London Health Unit also praised the delay in the schedule of the second dose as a quote-unquote excellent decision. The Canadian National Advisory Committee on Immunization analyzed the Pfizer-BioNTech data published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which reported an efficacy of 52% after the first dose. However, they found that Pfizer-BioNTech had included infections within the first two weeks of the first dose in their calculation, and reanalysis of their data revealed that the efficacy was closer to 92% two weeks after the first dose. Individual vaccine efficacy aside, Dr. Mackey compared the decision to vaccinate more people by delaying the second dose to an army giving one shield to every soldier versus two shields to half the soldiers. Unfortunately, one Canadian regiment of soldiers has suffered disproportionate losses in this battle against COVID and now face the uncertainty of whether they'll receive their fair allotment of shields. These are the migrant workers who arrive in Canada in search of work opportunities. The Migrant Rights Network estimates that there are 1.6 million migrant and undocumented workers without permanent resident status in Canada. Historically, they have been considered disposable despite working in essential sectors of the nation's workforce and offered limited rights. At the height of the COVID pandemic, they were denied adequate PPE, housing, food, fair wages, and other basic freedoms. Although progress has been made to improve their conditions, they still face barriers to receiving the vaccine. The migrant workers who come to Canada, they work in a number of provinces and they do jobs that are really important for us to have done. Many of them are involved in our food system. Um, and if we don't have them, um, we're not going to have the same kind of access to good food that we would have otherwise. So it's very important. 
Currently, and it, it varies somewhat from province to province, they will have to go into isolation for 14 days on when they arrive. And the isolation cannot be in the housing that they will live in afterwards because it's congregate living. It's people sharing a bunkhouse and a kitchen and other things like that. Much better than what it used to be because they did fix some of it up last year. Uh, as COVID came through. But two weeks of isolation, they need to not be together because that is a problem because they will have traveled from different places and would have different risks for having COVID. So the expectation is they will be treated like most other travelers from away, that they will come in, get a COVID test on arrival, probably get a COVID test on day five and maybe day 10. And if they're all negative, then they'll come out of isolation and may not have to stay for the whole two weeks in isolation. This is going to cost extra money for their employers because the migrant workers won't be charged this. It'll be the employers who have to provide that housing. So I don't know if it'll be in hotels or motels or exactly what it's going to be, but it'll be someplace where they can get food and they can be uh, socially isolated and have what's needed for those 14 days. The second part of this is, and this is ongoing discussions, we know that people who come in here to work after they've had their isolation, we still don't want them to get COVID. We don't want to have a whole pool of people that are not immunized when everybody else is, because it means if a traveler brings back the infection, had it asymptomatically, looked like he was tickety-boo, had been immunized, he could then pass it on and you'd start to have a flare-up. So the expectation is, and I'm being very careful in my choice of words, longer-term migrant workers, in other words, you're here for more than two weeks and you're not really uh, uh, you know, a tourism type, that they will get access to vaccine because it is in our best interest and it's in the community's best interest that they are immunized. Now, my expectation would be that they'll get the one dose the vaccine that works on one dose, because that would be the most effective for us. I mean, it's effective after two weeks after one dose, and it has a prolonged effectiveness period. You don't necessarily need the second dose. And for us, that would be the easiest, less cost in delivery, because you only have to do it once. And, um, and it's very effective. So that would be my assessment. And likely that's what's going to happen. Now, the other example would be the international students who are here at university, and they're here for a considerable period of time, but they don't have a health card because they're not, they're international students on a particular kind of a visa. So again, I would expect them to have the same access to, because it's in our best interest. One long-term care worker, identified as Lily, told Global News that she had to make up an excuse for why she wouldn't be getting her vaccine when her employer sent out an email collecting provincial health card numbers, something she doesn't have. She is certain she would have been fired if her employer found out this fact. The Migrant Rights Network is now demanding that the vaccine be free, not require a health card or collection of identification, and come with a guarantee that information will not be shared with law or immigration enforcement authorities. There's another unique population that requires some creativity when thinking about a vaccine rollout strategy. A subgroup of people with an underdeveloped understanding of good hygiene, personal space, and following rules. I'm actually not talking about college fraternity brothers here. School-aged children, since the beginning of the pandemic, have been the unfortunate scapegoats subject to mass finger-pointing as super-spreaders. 
Cross-sectional and prospective studies have shown, however, that school reopenings were not associated with increases in community transmission when proper protocols were observed. And of course, we had to ask the first pediatrician in Canada to become certified in infectious diseases about the logistics of vaccinating children. Well, we know that logistically for children that are in schools, it is the easiest and fastest way to deliver vaccine because they're all congregated and it takes less time and less effort to do a large number. So I would expect for school-age children, if schools are in, that we'll see the vaccine being delivered that way. If schools are out, I won't be surprised if they'll still use the school as the venue simply because people know how to get there. But it's easier to do that because you know kids are already at school where now you're going to have to have everybody bring them to school and then you have to have a place for all those people and so on and so forth. So all the provinces and territories, they know how to do the informed consent. They know how to do um, the manage a program like that. And that's what you're going to see. Now, the more difficult question is how are kids under the age of six or four or five, depending on what age school starts in different provinces, if you have kindergarten and pre-kindergarten or not what we're going to do for the younger kids. And that is not clear whether that'll be delivered through family physicians offices, through public health clinics, Um, just how that is going to be worked out is not known. It's unlikely that they will go to daycares to deliver it because they're not so big. Uh, It's a fair effort to go to do that. Although it has been done in other countries where buses come and the kids are immunized on the bus. But I'm sorry, but a gaggle of two-year-olds climbing on and off a bus to get immunized, mm, that's got a lot of tricky bits to it. So I expect it will be done more likely in public health clinics where a parent has to bring them and or in family physician's offices. And for the older ones, you know, the three, four, fives, they may be able to be immunized with at, at the pharmacy, you know, it, because pharmacists will have been trained how to do that. So school-age kids, I think, will probably be done in schools. Um, Younger kids, a little more tricky. With respect to vaccine hesitancy, we know that vaccine hesitancy very much varies by the context, by the disease you're trying to prevent, and by the vaccines. And by the time kids get offered this vaccine, the amount of vaccine safety data we're going to have is going to blow people away, okay? Because literally, we will have been, this vaccine will have been given to tens of millions of people. Uh, So we're going to know, we already know they're safe, but we're going to know even more. The second part about that is we will have had the clinical trials evidence for the dosing Uh, what's the right dose for children in different age categories, six and above, and then under six. So I think the extra pieces of information that parents are going to want to have access to in making their decision will be available by the time it rolls out to that population. As of March 15, 2021, CTV News reported that the federal government has committed to vaccinating all 38 million Canadians by September 2021 and excess unused doses will then be shared globally with COVAX. So, will that be the end of COVID-19? That's the end of this episode in our vaccine series. Thanks for listening, and don't miss our series finale. We'll be back with Dr. McDonald to ask the questions on everyone's minds about what the future might hold. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hashtag Health. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review 
and subscribing to our show. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at hashtag healthpodcast or like us on Facebook. This episode was written by me, your host, Hugh Kim, produced by me and Mary Nguyen, and edited by Mary Nguyen.